Hey there, before we start, just want to remind you guys to make sure you subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, and please leave us a review. It helps other people discover the show, gives us a sense of how we're doing. All right, let's get to the show. Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Uh, Rick, this is, I guess you'd call it an emergency podcast, uh, We uh, special edition of the special edition. Uh, Powerhouse Politics podcast. Uh, the main reason uh, for this is we're going to be talking to one of the more interesting Republicans in Washington right now, a uh, freshman senator from Nebraska uh, by the name of Ben Sass. Uh, I think uh, I think you've, you've heard of him uh, from a time or two. I, I have, and you know, senators write books from time to time. I don't know if you know that. Um, most of usually it means they're going to run for president. Well, right? you, yes, usually it means they're going to run for president, and usually they stink. Usually they stink. This one doesn't. This one's actually really interesting. So I'm looking forward to talking to Senator Sass about about some of his ideas, an interesting background for a senator, and some uh, interesting ideas about what it means to be an adult in America. Yes, yeah, so we're going to talk about his new book, but we are also eager to talk to him about the second reason for this podcast today, which is, believe it or not, there have been some major developments <laughs> from our podcast yesterday. <laughs> Uh, which we thought was – I mean we thought we were coming in the midst of this yeah. incredible story that had dominated and would dominate for days. Uh, obviously, we were talking about the controversy over the, uh, the, the, the – what the president said to the Russians in the Oval Office. And now it turns out we have another story which, Rick, seems to really be rocking the White House maybe more than anything that's happened so far. Uh, this question of what the president said to Jim Comey about the Russia investigation. And we know that, that President Trump suggested that there were tapes of the, of the conversation. Well, Comey had his associates uh, trot out something that's almost just as good, notes of that conversation. And the suggestion that President Trump uh, suggested to him that he find a way to go easy on Michael Flynn and drop that Russia investigation. That is explosive. And now we have um, two congressional committees, by my count, who have invited James Comey. I believe three committees that are asking to see the notes. One of those committees is also asking for the tapes. So this is a put-up-or-shut-up moment. This is now all the cards are going to be out on the table in the coming days when we hear from Comey, when we see the notes, and when we hear from the White House whether or not there are tapes of the conversation. And uh, let's be clear. This is different. We are talking – you just invoked the uh, the congressional committees, two Senate committees uh, demanding uh, to, to see the notes. Uh, a uh, the Jason Chaffetz, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, saying he will subpoena uh, the, the memo. And then the requests for the tapes. That's right. That's right. Coming, now, now, what's different is these are Republicans we're talking about. Right. That's right. And, and what, what, one of the many things that's made this, this last eight or nine days extraordinary, John, we've covered on this podcast and on TV and elsewhere, all of these unprecedented things and all the outrage and all the blowback. There's something different about this story. And you go back to this remarkable 72-hour period. On Monday, Sally Yates says that she warned that Michael Flynn might be compromised. On Tuesday— That was, that was by the way, that's— Last a, week ago, Monday. Yes, okay, right. The, the following day, James Comey is fired. Right. The, fo- the day after that— President Trump welcomes two well-known Russian diplomats to the Oval Office. That 72-hour period, to me, is, is going to just go down in the history books. This is critical to the understanding of the Trump presidency, and it may be the moment where Republicans tipped against him, and he doesn't have that solid base of support he's able to count on with members of Congress, the key investigative committees holding back. They have, their restraint is gone right now, and you're starting to hear the I-word uttered around Washington, and not in a futile way. You mean impeachment? Yeah, I think so. That's the one I was thinking about. Yeah, and, and it's way premature for that. And, and I think even most Democrats will say that. But 
the dots are out there that when you start to connect, you start to get to that level. And that, Well, certainly that, the other I word is independent prosecutor. We don't have independent counsel, so I have to be and, and you, you, you predicted, here, I believe, last week that that, uh, that was very much uh, a possibility. It seems like we're moving that way. Uh, it seems, you're starting to see Republicans break on that and say that that's what's necessary because there's just no way to assure the independence. Just given what the White House has actually said about the president's own mindset in firing James Comey, can anyone be confirmed to that job without assuring that independence? Uh, we know that you can do it just with Republican votes, but you'd have to find a heck of a good good pick right now to be able to be confirmed short of the independent prosecutor or independent counsel, some some kind of an entity taking over this investigation. Now, Rick, you and I this morning uh, went into the White House, uh, into the Roosevelt Room, and had a briefing with a very senior official, Mm -hmm. uh, not the president, but a very senior official, uh, about the president's uh, upcoming trip. The ground rules of the discussion was we we couldn't tell you exactly who, but trust us, a very senior official. I was struck by, uh, first of all, the boldness and the, 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 the ambitiousness of this trip. The first foreign trip for the president is always significant for any president. This one is particularly ambitious, uh, going to Saudi Arabia, Jerusalem, the Vatican, and, oh, the, uh, by the way, also a, a big NATO meeting and a, and a G7 meeting um, all, all at once, uh, first stop being Saudi Arabia. But I was struck by the demeanor of that official. What, 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 what did you make of it? Well, I, I can't decide if it is a kind of blinders on or if it's a willful blindness to what's going on right now. The, the Trump White House seems to believe that this trip offers an opportunity not just to reset the basic chatter in Washington and take, them, take, take everyone's eyes off of this, but to reset the narrative of the United States. It, it is so bold in, in its ambitions and what they're trying to do in, in the, 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 the seats of the three major religions uh, in going to, to Saudi Arabia and going to Jerusalem and going to the Vatican. I, I, I just can't imagine, even under the best of circumstances, how you could reset American foreign policy perceptions of Trump if there was no other noise going on. But the president clearly has put a lot of thought into this, and the people around him have been setting this up for quite a long time. And, and their belief is that there's going to be major deliverables out of this, that they're going to yeah, make Particularly actual, in Saudi Arabia. Right, and which is remarkable for this president who, who, who of course, did the Muslim ban. Right. And, 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 and he's going to go, and he's going to go to the birthplace of Islam. And so uh, a lot more to talk about that. But, but Rick, we are joined now by Senator Ben Sass, who we talked about earlier, uh, one of the most interesting men in Washington, also a good guy, just a good guy. So uh, we're, we're, we're glad to have him. He's written a damn good book, uh, The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming-of-Age Crisis, and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. Uh, some interesting thoughts. Not your typical pablum you usually expect <laughs> from a senator. Uh, senator Sass, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, fellas. I appreciate it. You said a bunch of stuff there. Some was generous and some was just plain silly. Uh, most, <laughs> well, we, we didn't claim well, to just yeah, for the record. It's like for grasshoppers, you can really dunk. I mean, there's a lot about that that doesn't work. <laughs> well, they used to say of Senator uh, Pat Moynihan, you know, he's he's written more books than most senators uh, have read. So uh, um, I don't know if I you've quite Moynihan, reached that I don't yet. I you know this. I sit in Moynihan's desk on purpose. <laughs> yeah, good. You're in Moynihan's desk. I am. Wow, I did not know that. That's, uh, that is fantastic. So uh, we want to talk about the book, but as you can imagine, I've got a couple things I want to ask you about. There's been some news over the past few days you've probably caught. 
Um, I, I heard there might be, but I haven't checked Twitter in the last six minutes or so. <laughs> yeah, so so how healthy is that? If you could fill me in, it would help. The whole world may have changed. Uh, with, with this this latest story, and I mean, this has been, I mean, just a week like I have never seen, maybe not since last week uh, at, at the White House. <laughs> um, but you have, you know, this, this, this story that James Comey and the memos he wrote uh, immediately following his uh, conversations with the president, including the one that we now read about in the New York Times and has been confirmed by ABC News, uh, that um, that Comey said that the president, uh, you know, essentially asked him to to go easy on Mike Flynn. If this is true, is this the kind of thing that could doom the Trump presidency? Is this that big? Well, let's let's recognize this is the first of many, many news cycles that are going to be crazy. That's not to minimize it, but I'm not going to sort of speculate on what the ultimate outcome of it is because there's just so much we don't know yet at this stage. I've been in the skiff uh, for the classified bunker. I spend a lot of time on national security and global security issues. I've been in the skiff four times uh, in the last 30 hours. And so there, there's a lot that I'm trying to learn about this and related topics and actual real cyber threats against America, future focus. So there's a lot about the speed of these stories that you're right is just sort of eye-popping and confusing. But let's say a couple of things. The first is um, we have three branches of government. They're supposed to check and balance one another. We don't have one branch. We don't have a dozen branches. We have three. So investigative functions that are at the Bureau and prosecutorial decision-making that's at the Department of Justice, those things have to be in Article 2. They have to be in the executive branch because that's where they fit relative to judicial branch and and legislative branch. But they need to be insulated from political decision-making, period, full stop. And so it it is really troubling if you have a situation where it seems like um, there's political interference in decision-making about investigation and prosecution. Now, there's just a lot we don't know yet here. I'm the chairman of the Oversight Subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee, and I called uh, overnight and early this morning. I I called for a full uh, turning over to the Congress, and in my view, particularly the Judiciary Committee, a full turning over of all of the Comey memos and any and all related tapes that the White House could conceivably have, because the public has a right to understand what the heck is going on. But the FBI director, critically important to reaffirm the cultural uh, needs of the FBI to be an agency that the American people can trust and that they can know is insulated from politics. The FBI director has a 10-year term for a reason, and we should talk about that more because the public needs to understand why this shouldn't be someone who's thought to be uh, a blue or a red jersey-wearing partisan. The FBI director has different responsibilities. So there's a lot about this story um, that I find, you know, really, really troubling and unsettling, but there's a lot more we need to know about it, and I'm committed to digging in on that, and I'm happy to say that it looks like my full committee chairman, Chuck Grassley, the chairman of judiciary, um, looks like he's leading the Judiciary Committee in the Senate uh, to calling for basically the same thing that I was asking for starting this morning, which is we ought to see all of the Comey memos, and the American people ought to have much more insight into this. There ought to be more transparency. By the way, I I thought the 10-year term meant a lot, too. I'm now... I have to confess, totally confused about what it means because, uh, you know, the president can just fire his FBI director. Nobody has questioned that, uh, that, that he's got the power to do that. We saw with uh, with Robert Mueller that the tenure is not a maximum either. So it's neither a minimum or a maximum. It seems more like a, uh, a recommendation in practice. But, but beyond that, 
the idea that the president would directly try to steer the FBI director towards uh, uh, closing an, an investigation or moving away from an investigation into one of his top aides or recently top fired aides, an investigation that clearly could have been very embarrassing to the president himself. Is, is this of a different level than many of the other controversies that we have seen swirling around uh, uh, the Trump White House since day one? Is there something kind of qualitatively different about this? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, it doesn't help that a lot of this stuff started. Again, there are two different stories here, right? The one is the sharing of the classified uh, information, and then the second is uh, the Comey memos about um, politics and decision-making about an investigation. But it doesn't help that this stuff was about Russia. Russia does not have our interests at heart. We do not have aligned interests with Russia. Putin is a thug, and he presides over a thugocracy, and he is an enemy of free speech, press, religion, and assembly, which are the beating heart of the American First Amendment and the American experiment. So, first of all, we need to understand that Russia is not they're not good guys and there's not going to be good stuff coming anytime soon in a u.s russia relationship when they're led by putin but at the same time we do need to get better at having deliberation in the way we do journalism i'm I'm as big a first amendment celebrant and proponent and defender as you're ever going to find but it, it is important that our journalism get better at doing longer cycle deliberation about this stuff, not just tweet storm to tweet storm, hot take to hot take. Obviously, political officials are hugely responsible for the the sort of tweet storm to tweet storm and hot take to hot take stuff. But we do need to understand that much of what we should be talking about here, I'm not setting aside 2016. We need to understand a lot more about what happened in 2016. Russia was trying to interfere in our election. But a huge part of what we should be helping the American people understand is that this is going to get worse in 2018 and in 2020. And so there's going to be fighting about 2016 that's partly going to be Hatfields and McCoys, shirts and skins, who were you for in the last election. There's important stuff to do there. But in addition, we need to understand that what comes next in 2018 and 2020 is going to be worse because the technology around cyber interference and around information operations is going to get more intrusive and more plausible. I think what you're going to see happen next is you're going to see candidates for public office and current public officials and current public agencies where we need to tackle the erosion of public trust. You're going to see more and more foreign interference by technology to try to undermine public trust so that if you have a candidate or a public official, we're going to see our credit cards, some of these credit card records dumped, and they're going to be 97% real. It's going to be accurate, textured stuff. Rick Klein's running for office in some state, and your credit card records get dumped, and you actually were in City X on day Y, and you were in Cities D on day B, and it's going to be textured in a way that's plausible, but 3% of it is going to be interwoven with fictitious stuff. And, Rick, you're going to have been buying women's clothes at some <laughs> shop in Chattanooga. A lot yeah, of I don't rule it out, by the way. That's weird, dude, because your wife isn't in Chattanooga. <laughs> and so well, now there's going to be new public doubt about you, and then five days later your credit card records or your phone records will be dumped, and they'll be 99% accurate, but 1% fabricated, and it turns out at 2 a.m. a lot of nights of the week you've been making calls to Chattanooga. Well, and so that kind of t- 
textured cyber attack information operations against America is going to exacerbate the problems of public trust we have. And right now, neither our journalism nor, in particular, our public officials are doing a very good job of being future focused and helping the American people understand that Putin's real goal is to make us distrust each other. And he's winning right now. So it is that kind of big thinking, aside from the slur that my co-host will no doubt clip and save uh, against me right there. It's, it's that kind of big thinking, Senator, that you're channeling in this book, The Vanishing American Adult. And I, I was struck with one of my favorite parts of this book, and it really is a joy to read something that, that gets at the, these larger messages. You imagine a Teddy Roosevelt, I'm a big TR guy, and, like, and so is John, Teddy Roosevelt delivering a, a commencement address uh, to, to students. And the, the, the in the arena part we know about, but he's got some specific concerns. Imaginary Teddy got, has some specific concerns. What would he make about this moment in public life? What would he make of what we're seeing right now in terms of the, the speed and the, the lack of thinking that you're seeing among among people among voters as well as politicians. Teddy lived at the time of the last great economic disruption. You know, we had hunter-gatherers, we had settled agrarian farmers, then we had the big crisis of the rise of industrialization, urbanization, mass immigration, and now we've got this switch to the mobile digital sort of post-industrial economy. And so the only real analog for a moment this disrupted is the stuff that produced progressivism in the late 19th and early 20th century. And Teddy was really scared that as we went from the countryside to the city, people would be so unsettled by the disruptive moment they were going through that they'd become passive and they'd yearn for politicians to say, actually, you're weak and you need daddy. You need somebody to take care of you because you're not strong enough to actually persevere and navigate this hard time. And he wanted to fight hard to make sure that Americans understood that scar tissue builds character, that resilience is not only possible, it's an imperative, and it makes you a better person, and it makes you a better neighbor and citizen. And so I tried to take Teddy Roosevelt and rewrite three of his speeches. I, I just slapped them all together and then just sort of rewrote a fictional, fictitious version of him delivering a commencement address next month. And so in The Vanishing American Adult, the appendix is actually this hypothetical, what if he delivered a, a speech today? So you mentioned the 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 fact that uh, that, that adolescents, so many teens, are are living on their devices. We have a president who tweets. We have a president who has been compared to a child on the pages of the New York Times and elsewhere. What's the lesson you draw for people in public life who are actually in the arena now in terms of setting the example and and, and living the kind of life that you talk about, filled with books, filled with scar tissue, filled with stitches. Uh, the, the the vigorous life of a TR. Yeah, I don't think you can be a good American public servant if you don't have a one cheer for politics view of the world. Somebody who has a zero cheers for politics view of the world, um, get out of the way. The world's broken and we need government and we need security for a whole bunch of things that are broken. And there are people who want to take your life and your liberty and your stuff. So government has a role. Um, at the same time, if you're a three cheers for government person, you don't really understand what America has always believed about a republic. This is not partisan republicanism. This is the American small r republic, where we believe that our 320 million people are capable of amazing things. And the center of our world is the dinner table. And it's the places where you work and you worship and where you innovate and where you volunteer for Little League and PTA. And so Washington is supposed to be a servant community that tries to maintain maintain that framework for ordered liberty so that every town and city and urban neighborhood where Americans live and are raising their kids, 
that's supposed to be the center of the world. And right now we have a whole bunch of people who believe the sort of boring decadence of Washington, D.C. is really that interesting. I think, Rick, you're a Yankees fan, and if I remember right, I heard on one of the podcasts, your kids have now become Nats fans, and I'm sorry that you failed as a parent. And you <laughs> let them drift into Washington and lose the loyalties of another place. Uh, no, actually, I think that stadium is a glorious place, so I can get why for the record, kids like it. For the record, they know yep. that they couldn't be my child if they became Red Sox fans. They understand that, and, and they're, <laughs> they're fans of both. But I take your broader point. I take it. So th- this city is filled with people. Uh, and ni- many of them are nice and well-meaning. I want to be clear. I'm one of five people in the center who's never been a politician before, so I'm not trying to beat up on my new colleagues. But too many people in public life in America really think the most important long-term issue is their own incumbency. And that's a bunch of hooey, because we stand on the precipice of cyber remaking the nature of war in, well inside the next decade. The lines between military targets and civilian targets, the lines between being at war and just being constantly cyber hacked, this stuff is going to come at us really fast. And we're 28 years since the end of the Cold War, and we still have no national security strategy for the age of jihad and cyber. This city sits on its hands and is, is constantly sort of frenzied about small ball short-termism and Republicans and Democrats spend all this time. And again, I'm not minimizing partisan policy fighting. I'm one of the more conservative guys in the Senate by voting record, but Republicans and Democrats as political parties are both pretty lame. They don't have long-term views and long-term clear agendas, which is why the Republican party was, you know, amenable subject to being hostily taken over last year by a guy that doesn't have really definable fixed political beliefs. And these parties right now think it's interesting enough just to tell the American people the other party sucks more than my party does, as opposed to actually making a case of what they're for. We should be presenting the American people a choice between the better of two good arguments, not the lesser of two evils. And Washington is just way too boring a place. And I think one of the reasons for that is you have a lot of people who work here who really just want to stay here. The healthy American tradition, the George Washington tradition, the Dwight Eisenhower tradition is all American adults should see themselves as part-time politicians. We don't need permanent full-time politicians here, but we also don't think, uh, you know, uh, everyday American citizens should think they can check out. It's their job to build the Teddy Roosevelt ethos for America's kids tomorrow. Yeah, I was just talking to a, a, a friend who I've been a, you know, also a source for years, a prominent Democrat, uh, saying the same thing about the Democratic Party, the concern that, that the, the, the lack of ideas, and they have such a gift, they believe in, you know, and Donald Trump is just a, just a tremendous target. Uh, they, 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 there's no question of the need to, to you can galvanize excitement and energy and the whole resist campaign, but the lack of ideas is very, very, very similar to what, what I've heard, you know, so many Republicans say. Uh, but, but I want to ask you on the technology front um, and the social media front, you, given your comments, it's also interesting to me that you are one of the more um, you know, serious users of Twitter. I mean, I, it's very clear that you uh, have control of your Twitter account. It's you. This isn't just the, you know, yeah. a, a tool your staff uses to get your uh, press releases out. You, you have embraced Twitter. Uh, how much... First of all, why is that, and, and, and what's your approach? How, how, how much are you on Twitter? Uh, how much are you engaged? Not, not just your own, what, what you're putting out, but how much are you diving into Twitter? Who do you follow? Get, get, walk us through your, your kind of Twitter habits. 
Yeah, great question. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, at Ben Sass is just me. <laughs> there, there's an at Ben Sass account, which is sort of the press office for my governance account. But Ben Sass is all only and exclusively me. Um, and I'm probably on Twitter, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, three times a day, two out of three days. I try to actually fast um, because I do think the like frenzy Twitter of it. Yeah, it, it can. I mean, partly I do it so I don't get in so much trouble with my wife. Uh, but I, I do want to take times where I intentionally detox and cut the cord from it so you don't have the immediacy of thinking the whole world is that dopamine feedback loop of j- just the way the immediacy of digital context works. I, I believe deeply in reading books uh, and the fact that you, you need a kind of different paced brain to sometimes be able to do that long form deliberation. But I think Twitter's a pretty great tool. I mean, it's, it's nasty in all sorts of ways too, and it's polluted by bots more than I think the public really understand. There are times when people end up in your mentions and they're having a debate back and forth and neither of them are actually real. You know, there's some guy in Siberia that's running both sides of that account in your debate. And, and, Obviously, that echo chamber um, played out in significant ways in the Republican primary last year. So there's all sorts of cautions and asterisks we should put on the conversation. But I do think that when you believe the First Amendment is so core to American identity, that assembly and speech and press, this is an overlapping cluster of freedoms. And what's happening in that in is that we're just we're kind of creating new forms of community, uh, both for good and for ill. I think we have an actual crisis of neighborliness. There's a lot of sociology now showing that loneliness is a fundamental core driver of a lot of stuff in American life. If you think about a definition of friendship in an Aristotelian sense, do you have people who actually feel pleasure when you're happy and they feel pain when you're sad? Do they? Do they, not because they choose it, but just because they love you. The way we parent our kids. When my kid is hurt, I ache. I don't choose it. It's just, it's who I am. It's ex- an expansive sense of the self. There's data that shows the average American has gone from three and a half friends 25 years ago to more just, like just under two friends today. Something like 40% of American adults have no confidants, no intimates that they share important issues with. That's a scary thing. And some of that is an echo of economic change where our jobs are so much less rooted. The you know, government can't solve the social network problem and the loneliness problem. But the work issue, we need to be having much clearer public debate about the fact that we're going to have shrinking duration at a job and at a firm going forward forevermore. And it's going to have huge echo consequences for local community and for policymaking. And so I think one of the things that social media can do, people if we think you can replace embodied incarnate human relationships with social stuff, they're wrong. But it can augment and supplement certain things. And so I think there are communities of place and there are communities of idea. And one of the things that social media can do is it allows us to learn more and faster with less of that mediation. So I want to praise media and assembly and speech and press but we also need to recognize the press release came about at a certain moment in time, basically during World War One, for governments to communicate troop movements to journalists. There are all sorts of things where we still have intermediaries, some of whom are going to be less and less relevant. The danger of that, of course, is that we won't know how to price for editing and we'll create a world where we don't have editing and you have less quality control and you have a world where actual fake news, not just the stuff that nonsense politicians sometimes whine about, um, you'll have actual fake news where people create echo chambers around themselves where they only hear from people who already agree with them. I think the disintermediation potential of Twitter allows us to think about a channel from news producers 
all the way to news consumers and allow us to think about this as a many-to-many and one-to-one and one-to-many and many-to-one relationship as opposed to the old channels of having gone from print exclusively uh, to one-to-many broadcast media. So I think there's lots of potential of what comes next as long as we're cautious and recognize that it's going to be a mixed blessing not an unadulterated good. So, so uh, quickly before we let you go, what is on Ben Sass's nightstand? What are you reading right now? Give us, give us some good recommendations. Yeah, so I, I'm not going to have a perfect, a great answer right now, just because I'm spending so much of my time reading classified stuff. So I'm in the skiff. Many <laughs> you times can tell us about that right too now. if you like. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to leak and then have myself be subject to prosecution. Um, but my wife has us as a family reading a lot about totalitarianism right now. She got obsessed. With, it started with the Escape from Camp 14 book. She got obsessed with uh, North Korea, and just you know, as a matter, you know, to be prayerful at our family for people who are living under genuine, horrific oppression in the world, um, but also for our kids to have an expanded sense of horizons about um, many of the things that they think are hardship is just not in any way real hardship. So we went from Escape from Cap 14 to a bunch of other North Korean stuff. We read recently uh, Jane Nordlinger's book, Children of Monsters, which is about the, the nuclear family life of a whole bunch of totalitarians and dictators over the last few decades. So none of that is pick-me-up pick literature, um, <laughs> but we always have sports magazines uh, by the bedside as well because in Nebraska... Husker football, of course, is a quasi-religion, and I'm a son of a football and wrestling coach, and if I ever have the chance to uh, to coach the Huskers, I'd bail out of here in a heart. <laughs> well, we had a we had a Huskers coach who came out here to serve in Congress. That was the craziest thing in the world. Anyway, <laughs> Senator Ben Sass, thank you so much for joining us uh, here on the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon, I hope. You'll be back here. Thanks, Friend fellas. of the podcast. You bet, and we should talk Vanishing American Adult like once a week for the next three months. So <laughs> hey, number one bestseller. On Congratulations. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks, All right, guys. take care. So, I mean, he's a uh, interesting guy, yeah. and uh, I, I think we'll have an increasingly interesting role. I mean, especially giving, given his, his position on that Senate Judiciary Committee yeah. and the Oversight Committee, and he's spending all that time in the skiff. You know, people have asked me a lot, you know, what's Paul Ryan going to do? What's Mitch McConnell going to do? And I think those are really interesting questions, but they don't operate in a vacuum. They look at their members, and, and there are a handful of members that have put themselves out there as, uh, in the Republican side, that have put themselves out there as, as, as very anti-Trump. Uh, ben Sass was one of the so-called never-Trumpers, or close to that movement, but he is one of the more thoughtful guys out there. And, and I think when you start talking about Ben Sass and senators that that are thinking about their public service like this is a young guy. He's likely to be here long after Donald Trump is gone, whether it's four years or eight or fewer. And he he thinks about the American experience in a unique way. I think that's the, these are the people to watch. These are the, this is this is what really matters. Leadership doesn't op- operate on their own on this, and Donald Trump doesn't have an army of loyalists that'll march forever. We've seen that over the last eight days. These are going to be really interesting times, and there are just a small handful of lawmakers who are going to be in the middle of it all. I caught that or fewer, fewer by the way. Was, I, I mean, I'm just saying. Was, okay, it could be. I, I understand, I understand, it's understand, happened. I you know, there's history around these just things, John. Pointing just pointing out saying. that I noticed. Uh, you saw what I did right there. I, I, I do listen. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all the time we have for this special edition, this emergency edition, emergency podcast yeah. of Powerhouse Politics. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again. I'm going to be gone, man. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to Saudi Arabia. Do they have phones over there? Can you make Friday. it work? Can we do a show I, from there? I, we can do a show from there. We can do a show I'm going to be on this trip. I'm really looking forward to it.
It's going to be great, and 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 we'll we'll check in from the road. How about that, John? I'll see if we can get a maybe we can get a king or something on the phone <laughs> for the for the podcast. All right, thank you for listening. We'll catch you, uh, you know, next week. Who knows from where.